0: Welcome to Manufacturing Hub with me, Dave, and this guy up here, Vlad. We have a super special episode 58 uh, talking about machine modernization with the one and the only uh, Tim Wilborn, in which we get to dig into a little bit of what he does when he's not making amazing YouTube videos. Welcome to the show, Tim.
1: Thanks for having me.
2: Thanks so much for joining us on this theme, Tim. And I think it's very, as Dave mentioned, alluded to, Uh, important for us to first uncover what it is that you do on the equipment modernization side outside of doing your videos, teaching students. But I I think maybe give us a summary, a recap of that as well, maybe.
1: Oh, well, you know, I'm probably the second best um, YouTube channel as far as um, PLCs. I'd have to give you the number one spot. But yeah, we make all two videos. (laughs) And training, and yeah, but our day job is we we build control panels, in, and a lot of those are retrofits, you know, to, you know, existing equipment.
2: And you also teach live classes, right? So that's a big uh, undertaking as well. We see some equipment, and you build a lot of that equipment yourself as well. So for those who don't know, and it's hard to see on the little logos because they don't match your shirt, Tim, but there's going to be a little logo on that kit with the TW controls official logo, so to speak. But uh, no, it's, cool. uh, it's really awesome, Tim. And, and so if you could you know, jump into those retrofits, what kind of equipment do you guys typically work with? Could you give us maybe some examples, some scope? Do you only do uh, electrical work? Do you also do mechanical upgrades? Like, What does it look like for you?
1: Well, I think the first thing is probably why do a retrofit or when do you do a retrofit? Because I think that's one that we don't quite get right. Uh, you know, it's really easy and probably if we threw something in the LinkedIn right now and said, you know, how do you justify the cost of retrofit? Everybody will be like, well, all you got to do is take your downtime cost and multiply it by your hours. Well, if you've gotten to that point, you probably are long past needing a retrofit. So, yeah, obviously, if a machine is going down continually, daily, weekly, even monthly, then yeah, there is some repetitive issue that needs solved. And if a machine is very old, then it could be it's time to rip it down to the bones and start over. But even before that, what I see people do is, you know, looking at their spare parts and, you know, inventory and everything. And which items do you have out there that aren't available anymore? Uh, Okay, we have one on the shelf. And everybody knows about shortages right now. This isn't that hard of a sell right now. But, you know, if we didn't have the shortages right now, and you have one part on the shelf, can you get another part? You know, is there, you know, what is the availability of all of this? And so chances are, there are a lot of machines out there that are due for a retrofit that are running just fine. And the most terrifying one that can need a retrofit is the one that never breaks. And the machine's been over there running for 20 years. All of a sudden when you open it up, it's like, oh my Lord, there's a PLC2 in this thing. And, I think it's long everything for a retrofit.
2: And and that's the scary part, right? Because when that machine goes down, I think you're going to be down for, at the very least, a couple of days if you're able to ship that piece of hardware from somewhere else. But in the worst case, it could be a couple of weeks, right? And we're talking, again, I want to discuss this also, not just the hardware component, because it might be easy to get, you know, some newer component in place, but then it's the process of reverse engineering that piece of equipment that's been, put on the floor 50 years ago That's nobody has worked on since and nobody knows who designed it, built it, and, you know, commissioned it. So what are your thoughts maybe like not only the, the hardware component, but some of the other issues that may also come up with uh, retrofits?
1: Well, that's funny you mentioned that, Blair, because that leads me to my other point is another important reason to retrofit is non-standard equipment. Yeah. So, I mean, I don't care what brand you have, what model you have, If 90% of your plant is one thing, that 10%, the cost is going to be much higher. Because you can train all your technicians for one item, and they can be really good at troubleshooting it. But you're going to have those few odd items, and you're only going to have one or two people that are going to be capable of working on them. And so it's going to be like, well, Johnny's on vacation this week, and I guess we're going to have to call in the third shift guy. So another reason you may have a perfectly operating machine and I've even seen this happen with new machines. Unfortunately I've seen it happen with one of mine even is I just put the wrong PLC in, and right away they're like, nah, can't deal with that. And so for training purposes to keep everything streamlined and, you know, keep it where all their technicians can work on everything. You know, sometimes you just change out a perfectly good piece of equipment.
2: Yeah. And that's, I think that's a very good point, right? And I think, like, Tim, again, I would say from my experience, the whole concept of standardization is very, I would say, like, subtle, right? Some plants have a good grasp on bringing in, like, only one vendor for their control systems. For example, you know, in North America, it's going to be your Allen Bradley. But then there's going to be plants that bring in, like, a hodgepodge of systems. And again, it's not necessarily just the plant's fault, but it's also the equipment manufacturers that come from, you know, different parts of the world, so they will stick whatever in their machinery and not be flexible enough to develop it on, let's say, Allen Bradley. So you have your, like, now your Siemens, Omron, Mitsubishi, and just these, like, five platforms across your plant floor. And I I think that, like, brings in its own challenges, not even because of the retrofits per se, but also from, like, a learning standpoint. And for me personally, I've actually used this as a red flag during, like, interviews, right? When you show up to a plant and they have these five platforms and they're looking for someone to figure it out, I know that it's going to be a very, very difficult undertaking. But I certainly can appreciate from a retrofit standpoint as well. It must be very difficult.
1: Yeah. um, one a local plant here. I used to say, if you wanted the maximum experience in the broadest number of products, go get a job there. And they had, I mean, their turnaround time on technicians or their average, I guess, time that they were employed there was six months. Wow. I mean, which is... Unbelievable. And so when they started just, all right, let's pick one and start getting rid of the furthest outliers. Because really that was the technician's complaints. It's like, you know, every day it's a whole different controller. And it's cool if it's a whole different challenge, but... Today, you know, I'm fighting the Siemens thing. Next day, I'm fighting this Mitsubishi thing. Now, I'm fighting this Allen Bradley thing. Now, I got this thing over here I've never even seen that came from some place, you know, that has some custom controller in it. And yeah, that, that, they got some happy technicians now that they've kind of streamlined it into one.
2: Yeah. No, absolutely. And to bring back, bring this back maybe to retrofits, understanding that piece of machinery could be difficult even from, from a, An outside standpoint, right? Because you have to usually bring in someone from, again, like a systems integrator or a third-party consultant that would be able to come in, assess the entire equipment, and then provide a solution, I would say, both on the automation side, the mechanical side, but also understand the process really well. So just, I would say, like the depth of technical knowledge and just the wide range of skill sets is fairly difficult to find. And throwing in the differentiator of the platforms just makes it that much harder. And sometimes, again, it's underestimated what it's going to take to uh, bring that retrofit to life. But um, I I certainly agree with that point, Tim. I think like standardization, and and I think that's one of the factors also, as you mentioned, that you would see retrofits done, right? They're trying to bring an old piece of machinery, I would say, back to a better, uh, I would say like life, but also standardize it on uh, what we currently have. Are you seeing like more and more manufacturers being concerned with that? Are you seeing, again, like what? What are your thoughts from that standpoint?
1: Yeah, I I do see. Well, maybe it's just particular manufacturers I see. You know, a, a lot of them that are coming here that they're, they're getting whipped daily on you know downtime. You know, so they're seeing really quick. Okay, we can if if we could get eighty percent of the people to know this one, mm-hmm. then we could do something to the other. So I'm seeing that and. Yeah. You know, I think our industry goes through those phases where all of a sudden, you know, we'll, I don't know. It doesn't seem, you know, we got to, I guess a new standard gets adopted and maybe it brings us back in the line and then we kind of all scatter back out. But yeah, I guess it depends on the manufacturer.
0: Dave,
2: what are your thoughts?
0: I think standardization is very important. Um, I've said it before. I'll say it again. Uh, so I think the best client that, that I've worked with, they were committed, not just to Ellen Bradley, they were committed to everything that we were building new that was coming in and everything that we were retrofitting was the same, you know, thirty uh, L33 ER, right? And if it had motion, it was a 36 ERM. And That's what it was going to be. And we had them on stock and we had, you know, the spare grandfather clock, you know, that was the same one. And it was more expensive than it needed to be. But this is the PLC that we are going with, or these are the PLCs that we're going with. And to that point, uh, they bought something over in Germany, right? So it was Germany. So it was, it would have come standard with Siemens. They're like, no, we are so committed to this. I sent and had an engineer live there for two months just completely rewriting everything. And it shipped over to the U.S. with Alan Bradley inside because that was the standard. Um, I've certainly seen other things and, and like they, they did the same thing with, with other, you know tools and, and machines that were coming in. I would say that is like the most prime case of everything is gonna be there. Mind you that they still had 2000 machines that had PLC fives in there that we were slowly retrofitting and modernizing for reasons, including maybe more so being able to pull the data from them than we actually had to, uh, then, we were taking, you know, downtime reasons or other things other than we just didn't have the parts. And this is what the standardization looks like, but I think standardization is very important. And to Tim's point, if you want to be successful as an organization, pick a standard, or maybe pick a couple of standards if you've got a whole bunch of different things. And then that way you only have to have people who are very good at one platform or two platform, or maybe some people are very good at you know one platform and some people are very good at another platform. And it reduces turnover. It reduces stress. It reduces the spare parts that we should all have on stock that we may or may not still have on stock. And that is going to help us uh, significantly moving forward. Uh, I think Vlad made the comment of of being able to get a new PLC in a couple of days or a couple of weeks. And I'm laughing because I I have generally heard lead times in like the 30 to 50 week range. uh, Or I've heard lead times in the 30 to 50 week range from a number of people. In the uh, in the last couple of uh, in the last couple of weeks, if that is standard or not, I d- I can't speak for the industry, but some people are waiting a long time to uh, to do upgrades. Well, I guess and, you know,
1: to back to the retrofits. You know,
0: I think on a new piece of equipment,
1: if it's going to be late, it's going to be late. Yep. We can adjust for that, but if you have a if you have production and you have mm-hmm. people there and that machine goes down, yep. that's a whole different. It's a whole
2: different ballgame. That's never a good position to be in because you have a lot of questions to answer, you know, when you're trying to troubleshoot and especially like very old equipment that you haven't necessarily worked on in the past. And you're trying to install DOS in your machine and find the right (laughs) cables, the floppy disks to install the software. But, no, you know... I absolutely agree. I think and again my comment on the couple of days was more if you have a different site that can mm-hmm. ship you a spare part, you know, you can source it relatively quickly like within your network. But yeah, obviously like if you have um I would say supply chain issues right now, you're going to be waiting for quite a bit of time. But I think it's also important cuz that pushed I would say manufacturers to look for alternatives and maybe not necessarily, you know, for a finite number of time, but you can order a different spare part that would work for the time being, quote unquote, may, you know, it may stay there forever, but hopefully it gets replaced by the right platform mm-hmm. when uh, the hardware comes in. But no, like, see, that's, uh, I want to have a discussion on obsolescence because I think like that's also a very important point in our industry. And I mm-hmm. think it's a very different life cycle than let's say traditional electronics, right? And I have quite a few contacts that work on, I would say, you know, vehicle and automotive parts. And so there the life cycle is almost like every year there's going to be a new version of a chip or a new version of a sensor released. But in manufacturing, those life cycles are quite a bit longer, right? So let's say if you take Rockwell, for example, I think it it used to be like 15 to 20 years that you would have a certain line of PLC. Now it's been reduced. So I'm wondering, you know, like Tim, what are your thoughts on when you audit your plant for various equipment? And again, I'm going to bring maybe an example back from my first employer where we did a retrofit on 1394, servo drives and upgraded them to like Kinetic 6,000. 6, and by that time, Kinetic 6,000 has become like also obsolete, right? They released the the 5,500 series or whatever. So it was like one of those like weird moments where everyone's kind of frustrated. We just finished the retrofit and we stored all these 1394 spares, but now even the 6,000s are obsolete. So what are your thoughts on uh, like obsolescence in general in our industry?
1: Well, I think the first thing, and in- I don't know of any plant that does this well. Well, I shouldn't say that. I think some of the really large manufacturers do, but I don't think we even have an inventory of what we have out there. You know, so we don't find out something's obsolete usually until it's broke. And so, I think plants really need to inventory, and really, it's probably a yearly thing that you need to go through and look up what is available now. You know, what and it's not like it's a sudden surprise. It's like you know, I, we've talked. The uh, March first, the MicroLogix 1100 was obsolete. It's been active mature for what two years? I mean, you you had two years to know it was coming, and you know people kept on. They're like, no, I mean we can keep building them just like this. This works. We got our designs. We got our drawings. Uh, I've got. I just talked to someone the other day. They're getting ready to build twenty machines. This is a big place too. Twenty machines, and they wanted me to build a trainer for MicroLogix 1100. Now I don't build MicroLogix trainers anymore they're on the act of mature or the 14 are on the act of mature and the 1100s discontinued well we already have the drawings for this uh, <laughs> the, it, so you're going to build something that you already know is obsolete and then yeah. that's yeah so that's a horrible example but even then you see we have like a two-year cycle that we knew that this was going to happen so probably every year we should look and see okay you know what do we have that's getting harder to get what do we have that You know, kinetics, you know, they've switched to this. All right, we don't immediately need to change it. They're going to continue to support them for a while. But all of a sudden, we don't want to be suddenly, you know, on a fire alarm here that the plant's down and we got 50 people standing there.
2: Yeah, absolutely. You know, like, let me ask you a difficult question on on that, you know, first comment. So the question (laughs) is, like, whose job do you think it should be in keeping track of your equipment, right? Because I've noticed the exact same scenario that you've described. Like no one truly knows what's going on and then no one's checking against the OEMs like released, uh, I would say like bill of materials of what's becoming obsolete. And so does that fall on, let's say like your technician, that servicing machinery, does that fall on the engineers who put the machinery in place? Should it be even, because in my mind, even the OEM has provided a bill of materials with the original equipment. So even they can technically cross check against like what year we're in and like what, equipment is obsolete. So who do you, or is it even a, a third party contractor that should be hired every year that comes in and assesses machinery? Like what's your, I would say like ideal scenario or what's. Yeah, what you,
1: that, that is an excellent question. I've never actually had that question asked. And you know, you bring up a good point right away. First, who's responsible? Well, at that point, you know, the the OEM is maybe long gone. Maybe there is Mm -hmm. no relationship. So I don't think this is the point I think you definitely can't rely on the OEM. It does have to be in the manufacturing facility, but I think we are wrong to dump this like we dump everything else onto the technicians Mm -hmm. as their job really is to keep the equipment running. This is, you know, this is future planning. Mm -hmm. I, I think this goes along but the same as if you're planning a new piece of equipment, mm-hmm. you need to plan to keep your existing equipment going. So oh. that's somewhere yeah. in the engineering realm. I don't know exactly where it is. But yeah, that's, that's an excellent
2: question. And I, and I wonder I would, again, go ahead, Dave.
0: Oh, I was, was going to say I, I would t- to that point agree with Tim. I think it's difficult. So I have looked at you know services and other things that would do this. I, I don't think that you can rely on the OEM to tell you that it's obsolete because to me, if I'm if I'm the facility and I have an OEM that comes once a year to say, "Hey, Dave, guess what's obsolete this year? we this is the cost of going to to replace it." It just feels like they they're gonna nickel and dime me, right like that is not a good conversation that, that is not the right conversation starter to have across the board so i would say probably manager maintenance operations engineering someone in there would would be good to kind of have that as you need to have this as as a forward-looking option i would say it's also i guess in my past experience It's not like we have all of the the list of all of the controllers every item from every manufacturer that's just listed somewhere easily searchable um, on the internet. And so there's also this, it's not like I could just build everything in a table and then just set like a VLOOKUP script or something like that to go against a, a known table that exists online. Cause I don't know of a table like that, that exists online. So I think it's more of a manual process, but I agree with Tim, if you were to go through and do it once a year at the beginning of the year, at the end of the year and the middle during, you know, July shutdown or whatever that looks like, just to have that forward looking vision, then at least you can plan for it. And I would say that you could almost also plan to say, hey, this you know VFD is going to be obsolete. We have 200 of these up and running. It's not realistic that we're going to be able to replace all of them in the next year or two. Let me go buy some on stock to put them on stock. And then we can slowly go change them out as we have the opportunity to do so.
2: Right. And that's why I said it's a difficult question, right? Because I don't I don't have the answer either. And it seems to be a very common problem in many facilities. It's just, you know, there's many things going wrong. We need someone to come in and assess our equipment and figure out what's going on. But it, again, it seems that people kind of know in general what equipment is there, right? Like you were saying, to him, like text would service the equipment and they know that it's there, but maybe there's no gap bridged between knowing what's there and like what's actually obsolete. Cause you do have to do that check with like the OEMs and then follow up and understand those tables. And there's no, again, just as Dave pointed out, there's no automated process for doing that uh, as far as I know as well. And my hope again, and maybe for someone who's listening from the, I would say the industry 4.0 movement, my hope is that at some point you can just scan the network and identify what's there and kind of, again, like maybe send out some kind of reports or send out like email notifications, because as Tim has said, like the micrologics has been, you know, mature your life cycle in two, for two years. And it seems like nobody really knew about this, but anyways, that's.
0: So I-, I will say Vlad, that solution of if the stuff is network does exist. I know that it is exists and it's existed for a couple of years. The other half of the equation is it's still a manual. I need to go find if something is obsolete or not, which is the, the other part of the, the, the equation that you'd have to go through. But there are tools that exist to allow you to do so. I don't particularly know a ton of people who are actively using the tools because if it's something they aren't currently doing, why would they pay money for something to help solve a problem that they're currently not experiencing because they're currently not in the process of paying attention to uh, w- what is obsolete or not. But let's let's move away to some like, slightly easier questions um, that, that we're not gonna like continue to put Tim on the spot. So Tim, my favorite part about- my, my favorite part about Vlad's windup is like that was assuming that none of the other questions that he asks are hard, right? He's like, this is a hard one for you. So um, we promised people that that you were going to kind of share some of your sage words of wisdom and advice from years and years and year, just a couple of years of, of, of retrofits. Do, do you have some kind of points or, or items that you have learned that you feel is is worth discussing um, through all those years of retrofits? Well, the first one definitely would be know your limits. Mm-hmm. And
1: by that, I mean the limits of your equipment and your limits because, and my dad's shop was horrible about this. We, we were bring a piece of equipment in to rebuild it. Mm-hmm. And rebuild meant, you know, if the bearing would shake up and down, you probably need to change it, put some new paint on it you know, fill the gearbox that's leaking like crazy full of oil and yeah. ship it back out the door. That's not a rebuild. But then we would take that and actually try to make it do something better. And it's like, all right, we still have the same worn out thing. So <laughs> you can strip a machine down, you can put modern controls on it, mm-hmm. but you still have that mechanical limitation, you know, of 30, 40 year old machine. Mm-hmm. And along with that, you've got to know your limits of well, mainly your knowledge. Mm-hmm. So do you have the mechanical knowledge? Do you have the hydraulic knowledge? You know the the the, one of my most successful and worst you know stories of a rebuild. We stripped the machine completely down, put Mm -hmm. new controls on it. The motors were twice as fast. This thing, I mean, it would incredibly spit out some production. I mean, it was it was wild just to watch. And I never thought about the fact that now that this thing's running twice as fast, the hydraulics are operating twice as much. Yep, and The cooling is still what it was before, so all of a sudden, the hydraulics are overheating. And, you know, a month or two later, the thing's leaking like a sieve, and then all of a sudden, it's busting lines like every other day. Well, I mean, we were so far above temperature on everything on that thing, and so now we had a machine that ran okay Mm -hmm. and had some control issues. And what we should have done was get it back to square one and get it reliable. And then maybe look at that, but no, we, you know, I was gung ho that I was like, I'm going to get all I can out of this machine. And Ah. yeah, I did. I got everything that machine had. And then, yeah, we were changing all the fittings and changing pumps and everything else, putting bigger coolers on. So, you know, there's, there's always a trade off, you know, if we are going to increase speed, what else is there? You know, are the yeah. bearings rated for this? Are the gearboxes rated for this? Mm-hmm. You know, all there's, there's a lot of little pieces, mm-hmm. you know, you got a machine. I have never built a machine that I said, you know, this thing needs to run hundred parts. I'm going to design it for 200, but only run a <laughs> hundred. Now, if it needs to run hundred parts, I'm only going to make it capable of probably 120. So the next yeah. thing you know, we're spitting 200 parts out. Yep. We're over the design limits of this. Mm-hmm.
2: That uh, reminds um, me of our robotics conversation a little bit on the on the cobots speed side, but that's, that's a side note. I, I would agree that you know those design specs are, and, and I would throw in maybe like a, a comment on that too. It seems that automation always seems to be the solution to you know mechanical problems. You think that we're gonna throw in some like uh, bigger motors on there, like a shiny new servo, and all of a sudden you're going to be making twice the amount of parts. But as you said, Tim, it's I think that's. Far from reality, and those problems are very difficult to solve. And I would say, even you know, with data, it's so difficult to pinpoint what is again going from, let's say, speed of 100 parts, as you mentioned, going to like 150. Well, you Mm -hmm. may have gained that in speed, but lost that in downtime, so it's very difficult also to see. And it it could be almost misleading, right? And some depending on how. You create your reports and data can always be shuffled around, and, you know, you can make <laughs> different charts. And I think we've all seen that, but you can always manipulate the data to look like we're, we're doing great because we've just, uh, you know, 150% on the speed. But in reality, you're not making more parts out the door. So that's kind of the comment yeah. I would make. Hey,
0: kind of long, you know, long, but go ahead, Doug. Uh, I I was going to say to to your point, Tim, um, I like to introduce a concept called design constraint, right? Like it was designed for a hundred parts. And so that means that we probably actually made it so it can run 120 parts. If we want to go from a hundred parts to 200 parts, which means we should design it for like 220, 240 parts. There are probably many things that we have to go look at. And it's almost never as simple as just putting a bigger motor in the thing or, you know, cranking up a couple of digits in a PLC because then you, you start blowing fittings. You start, you know, just the, the machine many times can just eat itself and it, it may run away. There, there are only going to be other issues. And if it's not a standalone machine and it's part of a line, then what is the design constraint of the line? And just cause I can run 200, in one area doesn't mean any other part of the line is designed to uh, to run twice as fast. Right. You know. And speaking of constraints, you know that another one
1: is, I know we, we have the greatest layouts and the greatest think thought of what the design is, but talk to the operator. Actually, mm-hmm. know how the machine works, and I, I built I rebuilt one, and really I I uh, had the SOP showed me exactly how it's supposed to operate. And I even, even went out there and, you know, I watched it run, but I should have asked questions to the nth degree to the operator about why he does what, because in the end, we, we stripped it. And this is another one. Of course, you know, if it's going to happen, it's going to be the one that you strip all the way down and it's a one of a kind machine. There was nothing else to look at. <laughs> we put the new new setup on and it was a hydraulic survey setup, and there was a selector switch on it. The SOP even said, all right, if you're running this material, you switch it to 30. If you're running this material, you switch it to 50. And that was the speed. And I was that like, SOP?
2: Okay. I'm just curious. The what now? How old was the SOP? I'm just curious. Chiseled. Oh, and well, that's
1: another SOP was up to date. It was, you know, it was fair modern. Fair that's enough. what's bizarre about this one is I turn around and ask the operator, I'm like, hey, and then this of course, after I've stripped it down, 30 and 50, is that centimeters? A minute, is that inches? What are we running in here? And he's yeah. like, well, I don't know. It's just it's 30, 30 and 50. That's all I know. And yeah, we got we got trying to move this thing and trying to match 30. And there was absolutely no correlation. So yeah, we we pulled out the, somebody in a paper filing cabinet found the original runoff of this equipment. It was oh, like wow. 30 years old. Thank goodness they had it. And it had the times from start to finish where they'd ran a stopwatch on it. And in the end, 30 and 50 had no correlation to any speed, you know? And if I'd gone through there and asked the operator, you know, what is this? You know, why do you hit this? What is this 30? And just bugged him to death. We probably would have caught that. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it was funny. We just did a retrofit with the same operator uh, a few weeks ago. And and I told Mary Bruce when we went in there, I was like, all right, now, one thing we want to make sure we do, because I know the speeds are critical in this, is we're going to time from the start, to the stop. And we go in there. And even then I ask him, I'm like, okay, show me. And here's what I always do now is Not one. I don't assume I know how to operate. I'm like, okay, show me how this machine runs again. And even then he hit the button and he let off while he was talking to me. And I noticed it didn't continue on. I'm like, Oh wait, why didn't he continue on? And he's like, Oh, you have to hold the button past this point. I'm like, Oh, well, there you go. I didn't even know that. Mm -hmm. But then even he remembered, I asked him, okay. And I'm like, all right, Mary Bruce, we're going to need to get a time. And he pulled a piece of paper on, he's like, I already got him this time. (laughs) But you know, there, we make a lot of assumptions and SOPs are meant to make a consistent process. That isn't necessarily exactly to the nth degree, how the machine runs.
2: Yeah, Yeah. I I would comment on that, Tim, you know, like an SOP is a luxury from like, from what I've seen, Usually you show up and you talk to the operator, right? There's pretty much like no operation. There's again in some of the craziest I would say scenarios, you just show up, there's an operator with like a board of different switches, knobs, and push <laughs> buttons. And I would just ask him, Well, how do you run this thing? And we'd just like toggle a bunch of things. Like here we are, we're making like this kind of uh, yeah. of a product. Then I'm like, Okay, how do you run this product? You just like toggle a bunch of things and like now we're running this kind of product, and there's no There's zero descriptions on those push buttons. There's no, you know, like the wires in the back are not labeled. So now you have to figure out like what's toggling, like switch by switch, like what does that do in your program and kind of reverse Mm -hmm. engineer. But no, it's, I I think you hit the nail on the head. I think there's a big disconnect between, I would say, well, I guess like that's a very difficult step of retrofits, right? Like reverse engineering Mm -hmm. the equipment and the process and knowing who to talk to, like, exactly, because I think the operators are there, I don't want to say 24-7, but every day, almost like five to seven days a week, depending on the facility, mm-hmm. and they really know how it should be running versus, you know, okay. what, the, what was the original intent of that machinery and how it should have been, you know, running. So, absolutely, I would agree. David,
1: yeah, and process. talking about process, go ahead.
0: No, please finish, Tim.
1: Well, no, I was just going to move on here because, yeah, it got me thinking of, you know, talking about processes. You know, when we go into these rebuild scenarios, usually we're presented with what the deficiencies are with the machine. And that's great. Mm-hmm. We know we need to fix them, but know what the machine does well <laughs> and what's important with that. So we had a machine that we were doing and really. This was an extremely hot furnace. And if you open any really hot furnace up to air, it's going to eat. It's just going to crumble the insulation. Mm -hmm. And so they were trying to increase the life of the insulation in this furnace. And so they're like, all right, we want to change our process. And the main thing we want to focus on is the time that this furnace is open. And the barrel can be over here. It's okay. And, you know, just get this open, get the barrel out, close it. And I remember, and it's one of those things you remember later on. I even asked, "I'm like, is that barrel going to be okay just sitting over there?" Like, oh yeah, it won't be for that long.
2: But in this case,
1: in this case, what it was was we were, you know, we were heating this barrel up that had this molten material in it, and it was a hardened inlay on it. So after that, you spin it really fast to make the you know centrifugal force force all that liquid out. Well, while it sat there waiting for us to close the furnace it started to, to, um, to solidify and ended up a porosity or little bits of air bubbles in it. So we had a furnace that would last three times as long and couldn't produce a good part. And So, you know, and that was one of those, it's like after that, you know, in hindsight, mm-hmm. that was a really costly, you know, improvement project. It was really, we, we really struggled with the modifications we made to get it to where it was to start with.
2: Mm-hmm. You had to uh, slow no, it down to, I guess, go back to the original spec, so to speak.
1: Ah, we got it. We kind of did this split ball handoff maneuver with the barrel. It was like, kick the barrel out, throw it this way, and then close the furnace while it's rolling over and then spin around and knock it on the rest of the way. It was, I mean, it was bizarre in the end, but you know. <laughs> but yeah, and in that, in that case, I honestly, though, in, I didn't ask the right question, but they kind of said, oh, no, it shouldn't bother. <laughs> I guess at that point, we should have realized I didn't know enough again at that point about metallurgy. And now if anybody ever asked me to can you do something that would make that something be in that cooling process longer, I'd be like, nah, I know it needs <laughs> to go over there, but I didn't know any better, though. Yeah.
2: Yeah. And I was going to say, like, that's an interesting component, again, of automation engineering where You really need to spend the time, I think, like understanding the process, but you also need to have someone who can explain it really well, because I find, you know, in, in case of those, I would say like high pressure retrofits where you have to fix something or upgrade something, there's just not enough time baked in, I would say like on the front end to understand the process really well. And that's what, like, I've been in those situations multiple times. And the same could be said also with like very old machinery that you all of a sudden upgrade to the latest and greatest and you have these, you know, three second, three millisecond scan times versus that like camshaft that used to run like one revolution every like 10 Mm -hmm. seconds. And so it it becomes, there's a lot of like really strange issues and I'm sure Tim, you've seen a fair share of these, but it's, it's not, I would say like one-to-one transitions or they're not as easy as uh, sometimes even the OEMs themselves make it uh, seem to be, so to speak.
1: Well, I think a lot of manufacturers would dislike me making this statement, but you would be surprised the processes out there that people really don't know how work. Like even on the engineering level, absolutely no. And I'll I'll go and call it out. The, you know, wastewater industry is the worst. We call it hand grenade chemistry. You know, we're going (laughs) to, we're going to throw, Oh, just get about that much in it. And that ought to work. It's like, there's no math behind it. You know, they're kind of looking over. Oh, no, I know it needs a little bit more. <laughs> you know, and there's a lot of process, or somebody developed a process 40 years ago and they are long retired. And we know as long as we follow these things right here, everything's going to come out fine. But nobody actually knows why things work. Right. And so, yeah, all of a sudden, and that's one that's a huge issue with what I would call more of the modernization where we're trying to add something into a process. And all of a sudden, we, we upset a process that has worked for, you know, ever. And it's like, well, how does this work exactly? And mm-hmm. nobody knows. It's just like, well, that's the SAP. That's what we do. And it'll
2: work. It's like, well, not anymore. I would agree with that, Tim. Dave, any thoughts on this?
0: I, I do. So, uh, so, so Max on our, on our Shoulders of Giants uh, show, he, he has a saying that he likes to, uh, to tell end users uh, something to the effect of all changes are changes, not all changes are improvements, um, which which I think sums up exactly what we're talking about very perfectly. And then you sit down to think about it, and you're like, yeah, I've made a lot of changes to processes, and sometimes the changes, you know, are significantly significantly detract to uh, to the overall goal. Uh, and to to Tim's point, I think operators, especially operators who have been there. And done that for years and decades, know how the machine runs or is supposed to run better than most poorly written SOPs or a theory of operations that uh, that I've seen. I think it's a luxury to come across a the theory of operations that actually has operations that you could follow step by step in order to uh, in order to run a machine. I would say most of the time, if I I see eighty steps, I look at it and I'm like, there, there's no way I'm going to be able to do these eighty steps appropriately myself without someone standing there teaching me 10 times, uh, before I break product or, or hopefully not break the machine. So I think that all of those, I think all of those are very good points. I think it, those are things that, that you learn. And then to, to Tim's point about changes and improvements, uh, you know, improvements versus what the process does well. Uh, for, for me, anytime someone wants to make a, a drastic change, it's well, one, I'm not, uh, I'm not taking that the assumption of it should work is actually going to work. And two, we're absolutely having someone sign off on that. Because at, at some point, uh, God forbid, there's an issue. I did not make this decision to change the, uh, the the process by myself. This is the document I forced you to sign or agree to, to, uh, to say, we're doing something that is very abnormal from the process. And what's going to happen is, uh, is going to happen. So I think all of those are very good. Uh, those are very good points, Tim.
1: Well, you know which Dave? That probably brings up a point I didn't think about, and that's there is a time to say no to a retrofit. Oh, yeah. You know, there is a time to look at this machine and be like, no, uh, it's either it's too far mechanically gone. Mm-hmm. Uh, it has other, you know, other safety issues. You know, the one that when Wimbledon was talking about speed and, you know, the cams is, you know, mechanical presses there, you know, a lot of people frown upon them now, but you cannot outrun a mechanical press with your typical hydraulic unit. You know, it takes a huge amount of horsepower to actually do it. And so people, and, and early on, I did some of them and they were definitely scary, but do you, you know, they're like, Hey, right, we want to add some linear actuators and automate this mechanical press. Mm-hmm. You know, and you got a flywheel up there that you can tell is wobbling all over the place, and the anti-tie down's been bypassed. And they're like, "Yeah, it, it you know, this this is a good sound press." And I'm, I'm sure it is. It make a great boat anchor, but <laughs> yeah, you know, there's a time to say, you know, now nah, I'm out on this one. Uh, you know, it's and it, I would I would say the two big points on that would be safety and. Yep. And also, mechan- you, know, you know, of course, we always going to point back to mechanical, but mechanically worn. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, we had one. And again, maybe we did, weren't told the limits or the constraints of this machine to start with. But we had one that had to precisely cut to length these um, sheets of steel. They were going transformers. And what they didn't tell us was how much the squareness mattered. Now, this was an existing machine. They were having length accuracy issues, and even though we mounted the servo to the same pinch-down roller, all of a sudden the fact that this thing wouldn't cut square was our fault, and you know we and we weren't getting paid until we figured out the squareness issue. Now in the end, it was putting out perfect length, just you know it was skewed, and yeah, I had we had this you know, fifty-year-old machine with no no proper guiding and yeah we're not you know we're we're stuck because they're not going to pay so in that case we probably should have well should have had probably a little better spec but even today i gotta bet i'm not great about getting everything laid out the way it should be but uh but yeah there was never anything about squareness there was never anything mentioned about squareness.
0: Yeah, but I mean, yeah,
1: would... we could have ran some pieces on the machine, and again, probably asked the operator, "Okay, now how do you check and make sure of this? Because it's really ingenious. You know, you're cutting these sheets. Mm-hmm. Well, if you grab one sheet and you grab a second sheet and you lay them opposing and stack them, it'll show that they're out of square really fast. Yep. And he would—that's what he would do. And I'm like, man, I never thought to ask him that before. Before we did this.
0: Yeah.
2: I mean, I would yeah. blame you for any issue encountered on that machine as soon as you open the cabinet, you know, but that's just that's just me. Too. Well, yeah, So
0: I, I was going to say as soon as you open the cabinet or touch the machine, everything is your fault as the integrator, as the repair person, right? Like you own it as soon as you touch it. And that's why I know a lot of people who won't go back in after it's signed off because they're like, oh no, it's signed off. I'm not touching it without payments and another purchase order for that. So kind of kind of to Tim's point, so I, I didn't do the job so I, I can talk about it, right? So I, I got a call, um, it was a large uh, paper company up in, up in the Pacific Northwest, right? And so they, they had a bunch of rollers and they hired a OEM to put a bunch of vibration sensors on the rollers. And they purchased just a tiny bit of like data visualization, like a single HMI panel or something like that. And so they had something like 15 or 20,000 of the vibration sensors across one machine and they had 20 machines. And they they, they purchased like 500 of these visualized, right? And so I, they, they wanted someone to come in and d- to finish the job. And so I go looking at them like, yeah, it's not that bad of a job. Like, let's go dig in a little bit further. And so we dig in a little bit further and it turns out how it was created, everything was hard coded into the, everything was hard coded on the screen, right? There were, there were no UDTs, there was no templates, there was nothing else. And I'm like, guys, you're not going to like this, but by far the best way to do it is to go pay us the money to redo the assumably $50,000 that you paid the OEM because the best way to do it is to templatize it. And then we're just going to hit UDTs up on all of these sensors. And then at some point in the future, you're going to go have to change a parameter on one of these. And the option that I'm giving you is three clicks to change the parameter. And the option that you would have otherwise is 12 clicks times 20,000 times the 20 machines that you have. And it, it's not what they wanted to hear, right? Like, could I, I, you could have done the job and, and hard-coded all of it, but you know, as soon as they have to change a single parameter, they're going to call you and they're going to want to know why they have to have, have someone or an intern have three quarters of a million clicks. And it's going to take them 12 weeks in order to, uh, to change everything. So sometimes... To Tim's point, it's important to, to say no or to offer to do it the correct way and let the client either decide to do it the correct way or do what I think these guys did is they hired a bunch of interns and they were just click, 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 clicking away um, <laughs> on the software all summer long, which would be the worst
2: internship. It sounds like you missed the opportunity of being the resource that does that for the next 20 years, Dave. I, I, was,
0: I was like, that. that's just not my thing, Vlad, right? Like if I wanted to be the resource that, that just clicked buttons for the next 20 years, um, well, we wouldn't be making the show because I'd still be trying to tie in all of those vibration sensors. Yeah, that's fair. So I want to, I, I'm excited to continue this conversation, but we have some people to thank first. So Vlad, you hit that sound and then we're going to go from there. We go. Awesome. So uh, we want to thank Preston and Envision, uh, these guys, for sponsoring this theme. Before we talk about them, I want to give one more shout out to the Change Life giveaway because I think it's so important. Again, uh, through May 12th, Preston is giving away an Allen Bradley micro 850 PLC, a panel view 800 HMI and the CCW software that comes with it. I think Vlad... Oh, everyone. Everyone uh-huh. has it. Yes. Except Dave. Um, Where's yours,
2: Dave? You gotta, you gotta like, hang it up. I, I
0: got this hat. Apparently, I asked Preston for the wrong thing to, uh, to hey. come in the box. Uh, so, uh, there is a link in the chat and there will be a link in the description if you guys are listening to this via podcast form. Again, I will make the ask if you are are mid to late in your career and don't need a panel view 800 uh 850 and uh or a micro 850 and a panel view 800 wow those numbers are very similar uh please pass it along to someone else uh the first couple of change of life giveaways have gone to people that have used it to either get into industry or expand their their offerings which is the goal of what preston does and which is why i'm going to continue to talk about it every time preston gives it away because i think it's very important Uh, beyond that so about envision slow quotes no documentation horrible communication and shoddy support does that sound like your current systems integrator or retrofit vendor Uh, look no further than envision automation and controls envision automation and controls addresses these problems as they provide accurate quotes in record time one to three days for most projects as well as world-class documentation and support you can expect quality in everything they do from discovery to delivery Ray says, Envision hit the ground running on our first project together. The rapid quotes documentation and clear communication are what makes it easy for me to keep choosing Envision automation and controls. Please vision envisions with an s.io. Uh, for more information to get a rapid quote, you can email sales at envisions.io or give them a call at 812-618-5089. It kind of scares me every time I give Preston's phone number or what I assume it's Preston's phone number. Um, Uh, And their mission is to bring automation and controls to the future of the present, one solution at a time. Their motto, you envision it, we build it. Uh, Thank you again to Preston uh, for sponsoring this and the continued support uh, of everything in the community. Ah, perfect. So I wanna go back and continue uh, continue what we were talking about, Tim. So you've learned a bunch of really good things. I, I assume the hard way on every single one of them as, as you have briefly described. So let's say you're going in and Vlad calls you and he needs you to come work on a retrofit or, or go look at a machine or a line do you have like a checklist of things that you have written down that you've learned, you know, or is that all mental? How, how do you make sure that you, he's pointing to a set. Okay. I was going to say, Tim, how do you make sure that these lessons that you've learned, uh, you you don't make the mistakes the same way?
1: You know, and you're right. It should be written down. Now, now I do have, I do have spreadsheets that do have certain things that, you know you got to check the box to make sure things are happening but probably when i walk into it really almost say you know kind of get just trying to get a feel for the machine you know yeah. is, is the machine going to be nice to work with or mm-hmm. you know is it going to be a pain you know <laughs> and along with that it, you know is the machine the actual issue mm-hmm. and i i think i've talked about this one before but one of the machines I you know, did, they're like, we got to make this thing run faster. And you know, I'm like, okay, well, I'd already learned my lesson from the, you know, the one that was leaking like a sieve. And I'm like, okay, well, um, how much does this run a day? <laughs> you know, but simply putting, you know, I know we got great OEE and all this stuff, but I just put a basic runtime counter on there or timer. It's like, okay, this thing ran two hours in an eight hour shift. Yep. It was not the problem with the process. You yes. know, and here we are getting ready to cut this machine mm-hmm. and yeah, it had flow issues. It needed yep. work going in and out of the machine, you know, and we would have got in there and really probably one overran the machine, mm-hmm. got minimal increased performance. Because, you know, if you're run, only running two hours a day, you're not getting a, you're not getting a lot more. Yep. And then probably then identified the problem and then pointing fingers every direction, saying it's yep. this person's fault and this mm-hmm. person's fault, this person's fault. So I do I do have check, you know, when I'm going through quoting mm-hmm. and stuff, yeah, definitely, you know, I've got boxes to check when I go out there. Though, now it it's more it's more of seeing is this something that we're going to be, you uh, know, I shouldn't say it's no. a successful. Retrofit as much as is this a relationship that we want or is this for somebody else? Yep. I you know yep. So that's probably where I'd start on that.
0: I think that's good. I think the human aspect is very important. I feel to, to your point, Tim, I feel like you have to read the client or the customer and decide if they're they're the sort of person that you wanna work with. And and assumably for you guys, you've been in business for a number of years, you wanna work with for the next 10 years, right? Like, are these the sort of people that I wanna do business with, or are these the sort of people who are gonna nickel and dime me and make it difficult and we make the machine run twice as fast, so now it runs one hour a day And because I made the machine run twice as fast, it's now my fault that I did the thing that they they, they asked me to do. Like, that, if you didn't see the flow issue, is exactly how I I envision that conversation happening. Uh, Because I feel like I've been on the other side, is I've made it run twice as fast, but it was a flow issue. Because it was a flow issue, they're like, well, yeah, we're not getting any more throughput through because we made it run twice as fast. So I, I think all of those are, are very good lessons learned. What are your thoughts, Vlad?
1: You know, one one that we didn't um, hit on probably should though, always remember there is no undo button or there's no easy yep. undo button on a retrofit. Mm-hmm. And and I've been, not luckily I have been the person coming in on a failed retrofit. I've not yep. knock on wood, I haven't ever actually, you know, been the failed retrofit, but I, I went on in one, and it just didn't work. I mean, when I looked at it, I'm like, there, there's no way to make this work. And so I told him, I said, we're going to gut the, we're going to, I, mean, I, know you, I know you just spent $100,000 on this, but we're going to tear it down and you're going to spend $150,000 on it. Mm-hmm. That's the only way we're going to make this thing work. Yep. And what you know, the response if you don't mind is, sharing?
2: Do What? What, uh, what didn't work? If you don't mind sharing, what was the issue with what they did?
1: well the ultimately as always ultimately it was a mechanical issue <laughs> but it was the uh, it was the way they had designed the actuator to grab the part and move it to positions there was just absolutely no way mechanically. the mechanical way it was gripping it moving it was never going to work yep um and yeah they had this follower system it was like six axes following each other and I mean, the part of them is this way. You can watch the inertia; it's just flying all over the place. And yeah, there was absolutely no way. But you know, I told them that, and of course, they're you know, and I don't blame them. They're like, "What? You mean we got to throw hundred grand in the garbage?" I'm like, "Yeah." And their response was, "Well, there's got to be somebody in the United States that can make this work." They're so like, "Okay, call me when you're done looking." Yeah, for, and of course they did call me. You know, they called me back because they're like, "You're right. We can't make this work." We called the manufacturer. They're like, "There's no way to make this work."
0: Yeah. Well, you can make it work, Tim. It's just going to cost $150,000 and it won't look the same as it did when you got it.
1: Yeah. But I mean, it was, I mean, that was a very costly mistake for him in the end. And really the guy, you know, and that goes back to know your limits. The, Mm -hmm. the, um, there was nothing wrong with the guy who did this. He was, he was a competitor, but he had no mechanical aptitude. Oh, and that was the major difference. I mean, and that's what he'd say every time he go there. He's like, "Well, this is a mechanical problem." Like, and they're like, "Yeah, well, I mean, the machine still won't make a part, though." <laughs> yeah. So, and you know, so you end up with that whole p- finger pointing part. I mean, and really, you know, I had a mechanical background. That's what you know. I walked in. I'm like, "Yeah, there." I mean, there. It's one of those when you looked at it, it was it was glaring at you. It's like that's never gonna work.
0: Mm-hmm. Oh, that is, that is a tough lesson. I, I have certainly had a few clients who I've gotten calls uh, for similar issues. I have one that I can't particularly talk about that uh, the, it was the CapEx project missed the deadline. And so it missed the entire seasonal run because uh, assumably mechanical issues, right? Like they put it in there and they went to start running the product through and they looked at it and like, there's just no way this is going to work. Uh, the best... Example that I can talk about is is the Tesla Gigafactory, right? So the first time I walked in there, it was robot and robot and robot, and there were all these dependencies and maybe a bunch of vision and other things, and having robots dependent upon other robots, fifteen twenty down the line, it makes it very difficult, if not impossible, because of tolerances and all these other things, right? So. The, the robot in the beginning has to be more perfect than it's probably capable to be so that the tolerance at the 15th robot, the last robot on the line, can still generally be within spec and, and make an okay part. Uh, and th- that's, that's a lot of like the, the technology that you think is really cool, but it's really cool technology that doesn't necessarily translate because there's no one doing it because of the dependencies and it becomes very difficult if not impossible and at the end of the day it all comes down to mechanical issues and i would imagine most mechanical folks or mechanical engineers are just going to look at you and be like no that's not going to work we really shouldn't do that uh but I mean, we can do it but we don't need to do
1: it so you so know you, well, we you'll, can, you'll, yeah. play, you'll play hard a hard time getting me to do a follow-in application if there's a way that we can mechanically couple two things yeah. together Yes. You know, and I've been stuck on that one before and really it was just here's one of those it was just because we could. We put yes. two 10-foot actuators to do this thing and they had to be <laughs> perfectly in sync. I mean and we're we're not talking about something lightweight here. We're we're turning a cab on its side. You know, that thing goes up and the next thing you know it's like uh, this and it, they're like oh well we need to reset the servos. It's like oh we need to do a lot more than that. We need some cumberlongs, some forklifts. <laughs> and yeah, um, a couple of rigors in here to get this thing down. And really all we had to do was come down, come to some 90 degree year boxes, mm-hmm. have a double output shaft. We could have had a motor right there and we'd have been done. Yep. It was high tech. And you know, that's what they went in there to sell them was
0: a high tech solution. Yep. I, uh, I agree with that. So let me, before Vlad's like entire brain just melts out of his head, uh, us talking about uh, simple mechanical solutions to high-tech problems. Tim, let me ask you, what do you think the future is going to be, right? So that there are a lot of people there are, you know, supply chain issues that we're having. It's difficult to get parts. We've talked a lot about how people are maybe band-aiding some solutions together, trying to wait to get the correct parts. What do you think the future of retrofits is going to be? Are we going to retrofit more machines? Are we just going to go buy new machines? Are we all going to blow up our brownfield factories and just go build a greenfield factory somewhere? What are are your thoughts on this?
1: I mean, we will never, you know, you have a perfectly operating machine. We're never just going to throw it away Mm -hmm. and, bring a new one in. So, I mean, retrofits are always going to be a thing. I think the shortage, what I hope the shortages bring is a lot more uniformity across the industry. And yeah, I know I'm, I, at least publicly, uh, I I don't get onto the industry 4.0 bandwagon. It doesn't mean I disagree with what they're thinking. It just means that, you know, I'd like to see some solid results instead of us talking about the spec all the time that, you know, I want to see it in the factory. So my hope for this is well, one factories do become more uniform, mm-hmm. uh, and maybe that means cutting some competitors out. Okay, that means that. But if you have a one horsepower drive, and it is you know just saying you know a vector drive, then you only need one or two model numbers on huh? it. We don't need twenty in a plant. Well, and I, that's the big thing I hope comes out of it. And and really though. I think there's an opportunity here for for well, see manufacturers to get together and make, I know we, I, you know, again, here's one of my big no-nos. I don't believe in making standards, but if we can make a standard that people would actually follow and make it where a one horsepower drive hooked on ethernet is, you know, similar Mm -hmm. in some way, but that's a, yeah, that's a
2: very interesting point. I, I wonder if we will ever see such a standard because again, I think those, I would say like purchases or standardizations or I guess like whoever gets those pieces of equipment doesn't always correlate, I would say, to the technical aspects necessarily, but more you know on the relationships and on the business side of things. But I, I, I think it will simplify greatly the engineering and the maintenance departments across like many plans. But again, I think it's, our industry is very interesting from the standpoint that we almost, you know, we build a machine that is not that proprietary and then everyone wants to kind of hide the knowledge, right? So if you have a yeah. machine that you've described, Tim, that makes, um, you know, like that furnace that makes whatever, like cases or, or plastic molds, then they're not going to share their knowledge and the lessons learned with the fa- with the factory next door. And so therefore there's no standardization. They're almost saying like, we're going to keep this to ourselves. So I'm not sure that we're going to ever reach that consensus. I would hope so, but I, I, I wouldn't hold my breath on that.
1: Well, yeah. And there's where I, I, you know, I know a lot of people say you got to keep, you know, you got to keep those trade secrets right by your side, but you know, it's like, like the, i like I'll tell you, the tire industry is the worst probably, you know, they're, they're so secretive and every one of them uses the exact same equipment, you know? <laughs> so what, what exactly are we hiding there? But I never forget. Um, there was a local uh, company, and they 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 made um they were they were a bleach packaging plant, mm-hmm. and they were they were bringing a new line on or bringing opening up or not opening up starting up a new line, and on we'll call it opening day of it, they invited everybody in to watch it. They invited their competitors and everything just so they could brag to them, and, they, and they're kind of like, oh, well, you know, all we're doing is blow molding some plastic and filling it full of bleach. It's not like it's that top secret. <laughs> you know? So I think there, I think there's opportunity there that, I mean, it would be great. Like, yeah, that, that's probably never going to happen that we all share what we do. But I think we could do a little bit of it. You know, one thing on the standardization, too, and here's where, you know, I really can't really jump on the Industry 4.0 bandwagon. And you know, part of the issue, we're talking about standardization, is there's always a new standard. And we kind of had it with device net. But then instead of building on that and integrating into something else, now we're off to this. And then we're like, Oh, we'll be having this new stuff. Let's write this one. You know, we're always writing some new standard that's supposedly going to make everything awesome. Mm -hmm. But about the time it's getting implemented, somebody's writing another new one. So we are dancing around all the time.
2: Yeah, I agree. I I mean, like, I'm also skeptical of some of the concepts I, I certainly have seen, you know, the value of data and I think, you know, a big, at least push on my side that I've seen with retrofits is the ability. I think Dave has mentioned the connectivity, but ultimately being able to see what's going on in your machine. And again, I think there's a lot more that goes into it. It's not just, you know, if you have a data pipeline that sends this data to some database and no one does absolutely anything about it, then obviously there's no value to that. Right. But I think the same argument could be made about a lot of technologies. So I think, People maybe underestimate what it takes, but when it's implemented really well, and again, your operators are trained on how to read this new data, understand the data, same like your engineering teams, and then take action on it. And again, that takes a lot of effort, and I think time and money and proper, I would say, standard operating procedures in place. Um, but I, I would argue that there is value there. But it, again, like I don't think it's a pure like technology play for sure. So I, I would agree with you on that.
0: I uh, I think all of those are good points, and uh, to kind of those points, I, I wish and I hope, in addition to you know, manufacturing facilities talking about what they do well, what they don't do well, uh, and how we can help each other, I wish we could share the wins more publicly, right? Uh, especially in kind of all of these spaces, so much of what we do is exactly the same To To some extent, a furnace is a furnace, and the furnace maker, uh, you know, on the This side of the border is making the exact same type of furnace on the other side of the border. In Vlad's case, they may also be writing it in French as well as English. But other than that, I mean, they're all substantially the same. I wish we could do a better job sharing those wins because those wins should be a good roadmap for other people. And if we have more people actively pushing, be it standards or companies forward in these directions, we as an industry, we as a world are going to get better. So I think that those are all very good hopes uh, for the future. I'm going to throw in my hope that everyone just uses universal IO, because I think that that, w- that would help significantly uh, reducing all of the skews. Um, I realize that that's going to use that. What? Which standard are we going to use though? I don't care. I pick, universal one. IO. I, p- pick one, Tim. Um, if, if everyone's willing to commit to universal IO, I won't bicker over standards. How about that? Uh, but no. So I think that that's a very exciting future that you're that you're thinking uh of and hoping for, Tim. Um my next question is uh is a question that I feel like you answered uh certainly towards the beginning of the year, but uh we're looking for some career advice. So do you have some career advice maybe for someone looking to start their business or to get into retrofits? Start now. That's Boom. the biggest one. <laughs> Boom. You know, I, I mean, and
1: that's the one thing I would say. Well, and I, let me back up a little bit on that. I probably was not emotionally mature enough to start a business much younger than I did. But there's never been a point in my life that I said, and you guys, I've, spread it, I've said it enough. You know, Amber and I quit our jobs, eight months pregnant with Michael. Uh, that's when we started this company. So there was no worse time mathematically to do this. But if we had waited two more years, I don't think it would have ever happened. Yeah. So if you have that feeling and you want to do it, then yeah, start, uh, get you some good books. So I mean, that you know, don't just <laughs> got me. And really when I say books, I mean, you probably know how to automate equipment. You probably know how to do a retrofit. Maybe you're yep. doing it at your plant, you know, get some books on, you know, how to do it, how to do accounting. How do you talk to a customer? How how do you make a sales call. How do you quote things? Mm -hmm. All those things. Those are the things you're going to have to learn and get up to speed on really quickly. And probably the most important one though, that it did take me some time to learn is no one to say no.
0: Yes. Oh, I I love it, Tim. I I love it. I, I would say that all of the soft skills, if you will, are the hardest lessons, especially for most people that I see in, uh, in this industry but if you can master those soft skills of talking to people and and uh sales process and learning how to say no and maybe how can i say no in a way that doesn't uh, mortally offend the person i just said no to uh you you will absolutely succeed um in that so you get not to... redirection. direction we never say no perhaps this might be something better today uh, so I, I actually told someone no last night, Tim, and then immediately came back and asked what we could do to make it work. So sometimes, sometimes you, you do have to say no, uh, and and if they come back, then then maybe you can have a better conversation. So th- this is the point in which I typically ask for some book recommendations. But before I ask you if you've got a book or some content recommendations, we have not, for any length of time, talked about the uh, the, the YouTube channel that uh, that you run. Now,
1: now I oh,
0: yeah, Vlad, tell us watch about Vlad every PLC. day. Make
1: sure you subscribe to Vlad. He's trying. He needs to pass me. He's at like twenty nine thousand. Yeah, he's almost I'm at like 30, 35,000 or something. So oh, it, it's a race it's to the silver. Not a
2: measuring contest.
1: <laughs> and honestly, guys, you should. I hope you subscribe to me, but I hope you do subscribe to Vlad. And I would not say that about every YouTuber out there in the automation world. But I think Vlad puts out really good content. I think. He's very, he has a very good method at relaying the information you need. And between, Thanks, I, know, I will say, between the two of us, we probably have a lot of what you're looking for.
0: Yeah, I, I would agree with that. So can you, can you just give everyone a bit of an overview of, of your channel after you and I have, have both asked everyone to subscribe to Vlad's channel? If they are somehow not familiar with the professional YouTuber, live streamer, uh, Tim Wilborn, Tim, what sort of content do you put out? Where can people find you?
1: Well, I try to put out content to make you a better technician. So mine is geared towards keeping your machines running. Mm-hmm. And yeah, hopefully you
0: can Google Tim Woborn and find my channel. You can absolutely find Tim's channel. I, I guarantee you, uh, Tim Tim does live stream. So he actually was streaming earlier today um, he's got one coming out May first, eleven a.m. East Coast time, right? Is is, is that one a.m.? It's not one a.m. We found yeah. that. I was looking yeah, it, at. Was it like, oh, showed man. us one a.m. And Tim's like, I'm pretty sure I'm not committing to shit going live at one a.m. East Coast time. It's for all the Australian fans of uh, of Tim Willborn. Uh, but no, and so you guys are talking about connected workbenches. Is, is that right? That is looking like what it's going to be. We may do a QA. and a Depends
1: on, I need to look, because yeah. we didn't do any question answers this. I need to look at how many we have in there because what we're doing kind of is letting them stack up and sort out. And so
0: I need to look and see. So okay. not sure yet. Okay. So, but you guys should absolutely uh, check out Tim. He certainly has about as much fun as anyone does um, on, his, on his YouTube. He's been doing uh, a bunch of fun collaborations collaborations you may or may not have seen him cut a plc in part with uh with some water uh that's right check out eddie saunders flex machine tools youtube
1: channel also but yes absolutely Absolutely. amazing do what
2: i was gonna say tim's a lot more proactive about content than i am i know that you're releasing a (laughs) lot more videos i would say that much it's certainly something that i need to get myself to uh to do a bit more frequently but no it's uh You've got a lot of videos there too, Tim. So really appreciate it. Awesome. Well, thank you.
0: So I do have one last question for you, Tim. Uh, how, how we wrap up every week is, is who should reach out to you? Who do you want to talk to? Who do you need help from? Who are you looking to help? I mean, really, it, I would say most of the
1: people who reach out to me are our technicians and not necessarily automation technicians. Most of them are mechanical or electrical and are just running up head-to-head against the PLC and need to understand it. Chances are you've stumbled, you've failed some, and no, you don't need to learn to write PLC programs, but you need to learn how to get in there and figure out, okay, my pump doesn't run, what switch do I need to go look at?
0: I love it. Uh, I I think everyone should connect with Tim. So if you guys aren't on his YouTube channel, uh, you guys should subscribe to his YouTube channel. If you're watching on LinkedIn, if you're one of like the four people on LinkedIn currently not uh, connected or following Tim Wilborn, uh, please go ahead and do so. He, uh, he puts out great videos uh, and, uh, and posts all the time, sometimes like 20 times a day. And you're like, Tim, where do you do retrofits or teach classes or or do all of these other things? Exactly. Uh, Tim may have just automated himself. Uh, maybe hey. this is like robot, Tim could be, could be, but no, awesome. That, that took too long
1: to get knocked out about the fake backgrounds and everything.
0: <laughs> no, perfect. So, so thank you, Tim. Uh, Tim does have a different background now than he normally does. And I don't think he went and made this fake background specifically for this show, but thank you, Tim. Thank you everyone for watching. Uh, it has been a, a great episode. Uh, Oh, I I almost forgot. So if you're listening in podcast form or you haven't hit the like button, uh, please go do all those things and rate us five stars on Apple Podcasts and Spotify and Audible and I don't know, anywhere else that you can do that. It helps the show. As I like to joke, Tim, we could tell you why it uh, helps the algorithm, but this is not that show. Uh, We also want to thank Preston and Envision, uh, these guys uh, for sponsoring the theme and doing the Change Your Life giveaway. Until next week, we'll see you all soon.
2: Bye-bye. Thank you, Tim. Thank you, everyone. Bye.